Hebrews chapter 10 is where we will be today. We're going to be looking at Hebrews 10, 26 through 39. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 39. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 26 through the end of the chapter. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Verse 32 But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Our passage here today in Hebrews is one of a handful of passages in Hebrews that present us with particular difficulties, that presents us with particular challenges that presents us with particular warnings that for the hearers today sound very, very severe. And as I read a passage like this or a passage like Hebrews 6, if you know what passage is in Hebrews 6, I'm reminded of the reality of the difficulties that it is to read Scripture and oftentimes make sense of what we read. This is not to say that the Bible is too complex for us to understand. It is not to say that the Holy Spirit does not empower us for the task of reading God's word and understanding it truly and rightly, but we would be foolish to act as though there are no difficulties in reading and understanding the word of God correctly. As I was reading this passage this week, I was reminded of a conversation that I had recently with someone, and in the conversation, the topic of Calvinism and Arminianism came up in the conversation. And you might notice from the title of my sermon today that we will be dealing a little bit with these concepts and with these doctrines. But I remember that the person I was talking to made a statement that at the time, and even still, I understand it makes sense, uh, but the more I thought about it, the more it kind of caused me to think. 
they, they told me this statement. They said, yeah, I strive uh, to pray and believe like a Calvinist, but to live like an Arminian. Now, if you are unfamiliar with the doctrines of Arminianism and Calvinism, it is not my intention to uh, take us into the weeds of, of uh, getting into the depths of those doctrines. They are valuable doctrines worth looking at and considering and studying, uh, but not for uh, our time here today in its entirety. But the idea being that the doctrines of Calvin, or what we would also call the doctrines of grace, as I've entitled my sermon here today, are the understanding that the Lord God saves, that he is sovereign over salvation, that he is sovereign from beginning to end, that every aspect of our salvation he is in charge of. He is the one who accomplishes it. He does the work. This means from the moment we are called to the moment we are glorified with him in heaven and everything in between, it is entirely God's work. He alone deserves the glory because he alone has done the work. We contribute nothing to our salvation except, as Luther would say, the sin that made it necessary. And that includes our perseverance. That includes our making it to the end, our ultimate glorification. The Lord deserves the glory. These are the doctrines of grace. This is what is commonly called Calvinism, summed up in a nutshell, are these beliefs. The Arminian perspective is one that says man carries some responsibility, that salvation is in a sense synergistic, that, or excuse me, monergistic. No, wait, synergistic is correct. That we do a part of the work along with Christ, that we are co-workers along with Christ in our salvation. And even in our perseverance that we will remain in Christ Jesus so long as we obey, so long as we do what we are called to do, so long as we put in the effort necessary to maintain our faith and to maintain our salvation. And uh, those of us in here today who understand the doctrines of grace and, and what Calvin put forward and were ultimately put under his name as Calvinism would know that that is absolutely not the case. That if it is up to us, even 1% of our salvation left to our doing, that we will not be saved for we are utterly incapable of doing anything to save ourselves or to keep ourselves in Christ Jesus. The quote, I desire to believe like a Calvinist but live like an Armenian, doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you begin to think about what Arminianism would put forward. That that you are responsible for maintaining your salvation. And so I'm going to live as though I have to live a certain way in order to remain a Christian, in order to remain in God's grace. In essence, it is in a sense saying I need to earn God's continued grace and demonstrate that by my actions and by my works. The problem is to live as an Arminian is to live with a sacrificed hope. A hope that is rooted not in something that is immutable, not in something that is lasting, something that is faithful, but rather it is to place our hope in ourselves and in our effort and in what we can do in order to remain in Christ. And there is a deep, deep problem with that. However, I am a firm Calvinist, unashamedly, when we read a passage like this in Hebrews 10, there is a temptation for us 
even the Calvinists in this place to say, man, it sure is hard to understand what he's saying here. Because we read Hebrews chapter 10 and we read the words and the warning that comes through the author of Hebrews and we say, this is a serious warning and we should. But what is this warning telling us here today? And is this warning, is this uh, call to endurance at odds with the doctrines of grace? My argument to you today is that it indeed is not. But that actually true Calvinists hold these doctrines and these warnings to be severe and to be taken seriously. We start today with point number one of two. I have only two points for us today. The first point for us today is a fearful warning. A fearful warning given in verses 26 through 31. We see the warning start with this phrase. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. We see here this warning of a coming judgment, of a coming destruction. A coming destruction specifically on those who go on sinning deliberately. He goes on to say, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses uh, dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse then do you think will be the punishment of the one who desert, the one who tramples underfoot the Son of God, and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. This is a severe warning that is given here to us, and I would suggest to us today that there are two people that the writer has in mind that this passage could apply to today. In a sense, two types of apostasy, of utterly abandoning Christ and missing salvation. The two types of people that I think the writer has in mind here are, first of all, those who apostatize outright. Those who outright abandon, reject the faith, and ultimately fall away. These are those who completely forsake the truth of the gospel, who continue on for a little while, but ultimately forfeit their confidence, forfeit their hope, and abandon the truth that is available in Christ Jesus. These are those who... Jesus in the parable of the sower and the seeds would be those who sprang up quickly and came to life, it seemed, but ultimately bore no fruit and were choked out, who withered and died without ever bearing fruit, demonstrating the lack of true faith that was theirs. These are the outright apostates, those who completely reject the faith. These are those who are, I think, most accurately dealt with in Hebrews chapter 6, which we preached on a a few weeks ago. So I won't spend any more time laboring on these. But there is another person I think that this passage has to deal with. And I would say the second kind of apostasy, the second person that this passage would have us to see and to uh, address is those who have heard the truth, those who know the truth, And those who claim to believe the truth and even walk in it for a time, but ultimately reject Christ by choosing their own sin over their commitment to him. I would illustrate the difference between these two kinds of 
apostasy to you by reminding you of the parable that Jesus told of the man who was walking in the field and he found a treasure there in that field. And when he found that treasure, he went, sold, sold all that he had and bought that field. He bought that field so that he might attain that treasure. And he did so because he realized that this treasure in this field was worth all that he had. It was worth all that he had and more. The one who rejects Christ Jesus outright, falls away in blatant unbelief, is one who found the treasure but concluded it was not more valuable than what he had. I don't need that treasure. It's not really of that much value at all. But the second person is the one who continues in deliberate sin. The one who saw the treasure, knew and understood its value, and yet desperately tried to cling to what they had, to cling to their own treasures and their own possession. The Bible tells us that man cannot serve two masters. It is impossible to come to Christ, to reject all that we have, to come to Christ and yet cling to our sin. This kind of attitude could be described as a sin of presumption, as Charles Spurgeon calls it in his sermon titled, A Caution to the Presumptuous. I want to read you a quote from his sermon, this illustration that he gives. In his sermon, he says this, It is a singular fact, but nevertheless most certain, that the vices are counterfeits of virtues. Whenever God sends from the mint of heaven a precious coin of genuine metal, Satan will imitate the impress and utter a vile reproduction of no value. So with the best virtues, the saving grace of faith, when it comes to its perfection, it ripens into confidence. And there is nothing so comfortable and so desirable to the Christian as the full assurance of faith. Hence, when we find Satan when he sees this good coin at once takes the metal of the bottomless pit, imitates the heavenly image and superscription of assurance and palms upon us the vice of presumption. The point that Charles Spurgeon is making here is that there is a sin in which we can become presumptuous, in which sinners can presumptuously think that they have access to God, that they are in the fold of God, and yet living deliberately, intentionally, willfully, and unrepentantly in their sin. This is what we call presumption. To presume upon the grace of God that we can live however we want rather than how we are called. This is the same attitude that Paul addresses in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, when he says, What then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. This is that same sin of presumption that says that we can live however we want. We can go out, we can live whatever life we want to live, recognizing that we prayed a prayer that one time, or we walked that aisle that one time, or we went to that VBS and raised our hand, and now we're good. And now we can live however we want to live. This is the accusation that is most commonly levied against those who believe the doctrines of grace, believe that our salvation is secure in Christ Jesus. Let this never be said of us. As Paul would say, by no means. We are not called to live as though God's grace has given us a license to sin. That is called presumption. Here's the thing. 
When we read a passage like this, regardless of our soteriology or our doctrinal distinctives that we hold, the warning in this passage is simple and it is clear. If you keep on in willful, unrepentant sin, you are in a very dangerous place. You are risking the very wrath of God upon your head. The text is clear that for those who live such a life of unrepentance, that there is no sacrifice for them, only judgment and fire. And to say that there is no sacrifice for sin is to say that you will have to pay the price for your sin. If Christ is not paying the price for your sin, if you are not uh, attached to the sacrifice of Christ, if you are not in him, then the price is for you to pay, and that price is an eternal torment in the pit of hell. And this is the actual real warning that the author is giving us here. But we don't like to talk about this very much. We don't like to talk about hell. I don't like to talk about hell. It's not a comfortable thing for me to stand up here as your pastor and to preach on hell and judgment and wrath. And yet this is what the Bible has compelled us to see. That judgment is real. God's wrath is real. And hell is real. And if we take seriously the pages of Scripture, then we must take seriously these warning passages. These warnings matter. They matter because it is these kinds of warnings that is why church discipline is so important. Church discipline in our day and age is something that has, has largely gone completely out of vogue. In fact, the idea that a church would ever confront someone on their sin and judge them in that way and even potentially remove them from fellowship that they might be excommunicated that absolutely rubs our culture the world around us and even many christians today completely the wrong way and yet when we think about the process of church discipline with the ultimate goal of restoring that person the goal of church discipline is not so that we can remove them, get rid of the people we don't like. The goal of church discipline is to say, you are living in willful, unrepentant sin. And we want you out of that and with Christ. Restored. We recognize that that is the goal of church discipline. Then we must recognize that a church that fails to practice church discipline is a church that not only ignores Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, but a church that refuses to take seriously the wrath of God upon sinners. A church that is content to let people walk and live in their sin as a church that is content to let people face the condemnation of God. And that is not the church we ought to be. But, God, but this is not only true of churches. It is true of individual believers also. If we as believers look at our brothers and sisters in Christ and we see them living in sin, it is our duty, it is our responsibility to call them from that, to call them to repentance, to lovingly go to them and correct them. This is what we see from the author of Hebrews here. This same thing that Paul says in Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Or consider James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. 
The process of restoring one, restoring a brother or sister in Christ who is wandering away, who is living in their sin, unrepentant, willfully, deliberately, is the process of bringing them back to Christ. It is a saving process. We see from this text that a sinner who is wandering from the truth truth is wandering towards death. And it is the job of fellow Christians to call them back, to call them to repentance. And to fail to do so is to let them stray into destruction. Imagine if you were to see someone that you know walking, headed straight towards a cliff, failing to see the cliff is there. Maybe they're playing Pokemon Go. And they don't see that they're about to walk off a cliff. As their friend, as their brother or sister in Christ, is it your responsibility to say, well, hey, if they want to walk off a cliff, that's that's fine. Who am I to judge their choices? If that's what they want to do, you know what? I'm not going to stop them. I don't want to, I mean, I don't want to make things weird between us if I try and intervene. That is what we are doing if we fail to call someone out of their willful sin. It is our responsibility to draw people away from destruction and back to Christ. The Christian life is not one of willful rebellion, as we see in verse 26. To go on sinning deliberately is not what it looks like to be a Christian. It is not one of willful rebellion, but to be clear, it is also not one of godly perfection. Anyone in here who truly knows themselves or knows the people around them who are their brothers and sisters in Christ knows that there is no such thing as a perfect Christian. Godly perfection is not attainable for us here on this earth. It's simply not. And so for that to be the standard is also wrong. We might think that, well, if if willful rejection of Christ, deliberately living in our sin is, is one thing, then the alternative must be to be perfect, as God is perfect. And certainly we are called to live the way God has called us to live. We are called to put our sin to death. We are called to holiness. But the Christian life is not one that is marked by godly perfection, but rather it is one that is marked by a recognition of our sin and a repentance of our sin. The Christian life is marked by a hatred of our sin. And this is where we begin to see the difference between the true convert and the one who is living deliberately in their sin. The one who is living in their sin deliberately, unrepentantly, is one who has never experienced the grace of Christ, who has never had the Holy Spirit open their eyes to the reality of sin in light of the holiness of God. Be thankful, brothers and sisters in Christ, when you are broken over your sin. That brokenness, that contrite spirit, these are marks of the Holy Spirit's work on your life to cause you to see your sin as it truly is. And we pray that the Lord would cause us and continue to make us mourn and make us broken over our sin. This is what we ought to be praying. We ought to pray as the Puritans prayed. There's a a great book called The Valley of Vision. It is a collection of old Puritan prayers. And in that book, there is a prayer entitled The Cry of a Convicted Sinner. And I'm just going to read you a few excerpts from this prayer, this old Puritan prayer, The Cry of a Convicted Sinner. This ought to serve for us something of an example for how we ought to pray. 
Save me from myself, the prayer says. From the artifices and deceits of sin, from the treachery of my perverse nature, from denying my, thy charge against my offenses, from a life of continual rebellion against thee, from wrong principles, views, and ends, for I know that all my thoughts, afflictions, desires, and pursuits are alienated from thee. I have acted as if I hated thee, although thou art love itself. Have contrived to tempt thee to the uttermost to wear out thy patience. I have lived evilly, evilly in a world in word and action. I have been a, if I had been a prince, I would long ago have crushed such a rebel. If I had been a father, I would long ago have rejected such a child. O oh, thou father of my spirit, thou king of my life, cast me not into destruction. Drive me not from thy presence, but wound my heart that it may be healed. Break it that thine own hand may make it whole. This ought to be our prayer. As the Puritan says that the Lord would wound our heart, that he would break our heart so that it might be healed, so that it might be made whole by him. For only those who come having a true understanding of their sin and repenting of it and turning from it, only those find forgiveness and grace in Christ Jesus. The moment you are no longer convicted of your sin, the moment sin becomes no big deal in your life, that is when there is cause for worry and cause for concern. That is when a person's salvation begins to come into question. So let this be our prayer, that the Lord would cause us to see our sin, that he would convict us of our sin, and that he would drive us to repentance, that he would grant us such a repentance. It is these people, those who reject Christ's goodness, those who are living deliberately in their sin without repentance, loving their sin, clinging to their sin, it is those who have reason to fear when, as the passage says, they fall into the hands of the living God. Verse 31. This is an amazing statement. That it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, the author says here. We maybe ought to pause for a moment and think, how can this be that it's a fearful thing to be in the hands of God? After all, does not Christ himself say that nothing can pluck us out of his hand? Did we not just study last week and see how the author of Hebrews says that we now come with confidence into the very throne room, throne room of God, into his presence? Which is it? Do we find comfort and grace in the presence of God? Or do we find ourselves in his hands in fear and dread? The answer is simple. For those who are in Christ Jesus and have been washed by his blood and their blood, his blood pleads for them as the song we sang says, then the presence of God is the most beautiful, most amazing, most comforting place that we can find ourselves. But for those who are still clinging to their sin, loving their sin, refusing to, re to renounce their sin and repent, it is those who have reason to fear when they find themselves in the hands of God. For a sinner, as Jonathan Edwards, Edwards would say, in the hands of an angry God, experiences only his wrath. It is only the forgiven child that finds grace and mercy in him. These are serious warnings that we are given here in the first half of our text today. 
warnings that we ought to take seriously. But we are also given in the second half of our passage a call, and this is point number two, a call to endure. Verses 32 through 39, the passage says this, But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. After giving this severe warning to the Hebrews, the Holy Spirit gives this word of encouragement, or rather a command to endure, a command to persevere in our confidence in Christ. And I think we struggle with these kinds of warnings that he gives us in the first half of our text in Hebrews 10, because we, I oftentimes think, we miss the point of these passages. We fail to see them in their proper perspective. What I think is helpful in putting these in perspective is to see the warning that's given in the first half of our passage today in contrast with the call to endure that he gives in the second half of our text. Endurance in our passage here today is the opposite of trampling underfoot the Son of God and profaning the blood of the covenant and falling into the hands of the living God. One is contrasted with the other. You have either this or godly endurance in the faith. Think of it like this. If you were to go and to encourage someone to persevere, you were to encourage them to endure in their faith and in their confidence and in their obedience, and that person was to say, no, no, I don't think I will. Nope. I think I'd rather live the way I want to live. I think I'd rather go on with my sin. I hear what you're saying, and I, I, I believe it. I accept it. But you know what? I'd just rather keep on living this way. I would rather not endure. I'd rather give up. Would we not think of that person? You don't truly understand the grace of God. You don't truly know Jesus Christ as your Savior, is that, if that is your attitude. If you can so willfully reject the call to persevere, the call to endure, the call to obey Christ then that is a clear demonstration that you do not have him in the first place. We see here how the call to endure, the call to perseverance, is simply contrasted with the alternative, and that is to find God's wrath and judgment. We are perfectly fine hearing the command to persevere, the command, the call to endurance. We find encouragement, we find help in this. When we begin to get uncomfortable is when, like, in the first half of our passage, we are given the converse of endurance. We see the alternative and the result that it brings. What we ought to do when we see one living and willful sin is to do as the Holy Spirit does here, to confront the sin, to call them out and to call them to repentance and encourage them to endure in the faith. Do not abandon your confidence, as the passage says. 
when the writer reminds them of their former days, the days after they were enlightened, and of the things he recalls to their mind, notice that one of the things he calls to their mind is the way in which they joyfully, ex- ex- joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. Once again, this takes me back to that same parable, the parable of the man who finds the treasure hidden in the field, and what does he do? He goes and sells all that he has, but in what manner does he go and sell all that he has? The Bible says that he goes joyfully. In his joy, sells all that he has so that he might buy the field. In the same way, the author reminds them, do you remember the joy that you had even in the plundering of your things? Even in giving up everything, you had joy, and you had joy because your confidence was in Christ Jesus? Remember that. He's encouraging them. Remember those times when even as you were afflicted, even as you faced persecution, even as you had to go and minister to your brothers and sisters in Christ who were persecuted and imprisoned for their faith, the joy and the confidence that was yours. Live in light of that faith, in light of that confidence. Embrace it. The Holy Spirit commands in verse 35, do not throw away your confidence, which is a great reward. He's calling us here to remember the value of Christ and his kingdom and to endure in light of that. This is where the problem so often lies with believers who struggle with their assurance. Because the problem lies in where their confidence is placed. So often, so many times the problem when people struggle to believe that they are in Christ, when they struggle with their assurance, where is their confidence placed? What's causing them to struggle? What's causing them to struggle is that their confidence is placed in their performance. They think, I'm not performing the way I should, therefore I have no confidence. What would the author have us to see? That our confidence is found in Christ. To cast off Christ is to cast off our confidence. Because if our confidence is placed in ourselves and what we can do and how we can live, then we have no confidence. Because I can tell you today, Denton Ice is going to fail today. I'm going to sin. I'm going to mess up. The righteous requirement of the law is not attainable for me, and therefore I have no confidence. But there is one who has reached that level, one who has lived a perfect life, has granted me his righteousness, and has taken my sin on himself on the cross, and that is Jesus Christ. And it is in him that we are to place our confidence and our assurance. We read a text like this, and it is often difficult for us to wrap our minds around it. Because once again, what we have presented here is we have this this issue between the contradiction that we see, I would say a, a, a supposed contradiction, between the sovereignty of God on one hand and the responsibility of man on the other. We see God's sovereignty and salvation that he saves in and of himself and for himself. Yet we see what he has called us to. He has called us to endure. He has called us to persevere. And if we lack this perseverance and this endurance, then we will be damned. And we say to ourselves, it is either entirely a work of God to keep and preserve us until the end, Or it is the responsibility of man to endure to the end and to persevere in Christ. But it cannot be both. And the faithful Calvinist, indeed the faithful Christian, ought to say, yes, it is 
Both. That both are true. God is sovereign in saving those whom he has chosen from the beginning to the end. And yet God has called us to live in light of that and to persevere in our faith. And we are given warnings to what happens to those who don't. The tension remains and we cannot be rid of it. And that is the challenge for us today and that is what I would call you to. Not to try and get rid of the tension to say we have to reconcile the two. Either one is true or the other is true, but not both. But rather to say both are true. God is sovereign, yet man is responsible. God perseveres us, yet man has to persevere. And you might be sitting there and you see it right now and saying, how can both be true? And I'm standing up here in front of you now saying, I don't know. But that's not my problem. The issue we have before us is simply to read the text of Scripture and everything that, is, that it has revealed about salvation, about the gospel, about Jesus Christ and the work of redemption that he has done, and to say, this is true. It doesn't mean that we will always understand how it is. Because I'll tell you, the moment that we have our heads wrapped around the sovereignty of God is the moment we've probably gone off the deep end. Because we can never wrap our heads around the sovereignty of God. He is so powerful, so transcendent, so far above us that to try and understand how he could be sovereign even over our choices and our actions as we freely make those choices and those actions, I don't know. And yet the Bible calls us to this understanding. Are we called as Christians to persevere till the end and warned of what happens if we don't? Yes. Does the Lord keep all those whom he has saved and deserve all? All the glory for our ultimate glorification, which he guarantees us will come if we are his? Yes, both are true. Even as the tension is there, let us never seek to be so desperate to rid ourselves of this tension that we just brush off the warning passages in Scripture, that we act as though they don't exist. There's a reason Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Or Peter says in 2 Peter 1.10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, that is, those of godliness, you will never fail. We are called here in 2 Peter to confirm our election. To confirm our calling. These warnings that we have are not to be disregarded, nor are they nullified in light of God's grace. We cannot simply say, yes, these warnings are here, and yes, they are serious, but Jesus said that none of those who the Father has given him will be lost. So don't worry about these warnings. Don't worry about them. They don't really matter to us. If you're a Christian, these warnings don't matter to you. Just pass on by them. These passages matter. And these passages are inspired and important just as the rest of Scripture. And therefore, we must take heed of these passages of warning. We can conclude by saying this. The faithful Christian hears this sober and true warning against apostasy and says, Lord, keep me from this. Keep me from sinning and grant me repentance when I do. 
Grant me the strength, Lord, to persevere and the power to pursue holiness until the end. Because our only hope of enduring and per persevering until the end is by the power of Christ. That is our only hope. And guess what, church family? He has promised that that power is ours it, so long as we ask. He has granted us in Christ Jesus all that we need for life and godliness and for our, for our perseverance. And the author concludes here in verse 39 with hope. He says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Even as the author of Hebrews has given this warning, and it is a serious warning against apostasy, even he concludes with confidence, confidence placed in Christ Jesus by our faith in him, that we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those of us who are in Christ Jesus will persevere to the end and will preserve our souls. So what I would encourage us here today as we conclude our passage today, what is the call for believers? What is the call today as we hear this warning and as we seek to understand it and take heed? Most of all here today, I would encourage us Wherever you might be in regards with your walk with the Lord, you might be far from the Lord, you might be right now rejecting Christ. You might be firmly confident in your faith in Christ Jesus. You might be on a spiritual mountaintop here today. Your spiritual disciplines are going great. You're reading your Bible, you're praying, you even listen to extra sermons beyond mine. Things are going well for you. It doesn't matter wherever you are here today, the call is the same, and my encouragement is the same. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Let him be our confidence. Let him be our hope. Let him serve both as your confidence and your hope of salvation, but also as your example to follow. Christ has called us to holiness. He has called us away from sin. Therefore, if your eyes are fixed on Christ, then you will be rejecting your sin, putting your sin to death and pursuing and following him in light of what he has done for us. Not only that, but the confidence that you have would be a confidence that is firm, that is immutable, that can never be taken away. Why? Because your confidence, along with your eyes, are fixed on Christ. He is our confidence. He is our hope. If your eyes and your confidence is fixed on anything other than Christ, anything that you can do, any performance that you can put on, then your confidence is nothing. In fact, you have no reason for confidence. Fix your eyes firmly on Christ through the spiritual highs and through the spiritual lows and rest in his grace. Put to death sin. Confess your sin, repent of your sin as the Lord has empowered us and called us to do. Let's pray.